Now, unless I told you, and I have told one or two people, you would find it hard to guess what one of my favourite television programmes is, or was. It's not on currently. Uh, it's called One Born Every Minute, Channel 4's One Born Every Minute. Anybody watch that? Yeah, I've noticed it's mainly ladies who have put their hands up and men go, <laughs> um, and it's a um, large maternity unit of a large women's hospital in Liverpool and um, it's really seen from a, it's p babies being born seen from the perspective of the parents-to-be and um, the staff there. <clears throat> and um, you might say, well, what, what do I like about it? Well, um, I, one of the things I like is the way that the men react in all this. These great, some of them great burly fellows, and yet they're so tender with their wives, partners, whatever they are these days. And, um, and, and the fact that, that, that the couple just think it's absolutely marvellous to be part of this wonderful miracle that's going on. And um, I think it's the repeated miracle you know, the babies are popping out all over the place, you know. I think, I think it's the repeated miracle that, I, that attracts me to it. The, the fact that, that when a baby's waiting to be born, it doesn't need to breathe. That once the baby's born, it has to breathe. It has to cope with its new environment. And I just see the creator God in all of it. I see the wonderful uh, creation, creative power of God. And somehow the tenderness of God that's expressed in that. So um, the birth of a baby has a natural appeal to, to most people. <laughs> uh, to, to most people. <laughs> anyway. And, um, and because it has a natural appeal, um, then the fact that the Christmas story centres in the birth of a baby... And, and the associated mystery surrounding, the, you know, and the drama surrounding the conception and the birth, uh, it makes it a, a, a very attractive story. And, and um, uh, those who've, in recent years, those who um, produce Christmas cards and other paraphernalia have, have cashed in on that, where people's imagination can be stirred by some of the features that we associate um, with, with Christmas. You know, you include a couple of chubby angels and, and some endearing young animals, uh, and um, you know, people are stirred by that. People are stirred by it. Uh, the problem is, of course, and we might all reflect on this, that um, the whole event has taken on a bit of a fairy tale image, hasn't it? It all gets mixed up with the other stuff, and it's you know, quite a fairy tale image. And I think that the import, the amazing thing that God was doing on that first Christmas is largely lost to most people. There are people that will engage in Christmas and sing carols and so on, but have very little idea as to what God was doing on that first Christmas. Nevertheless, we can't get away from the fact that the popularity of the Christmas season with all that's associated with it um, is something that we in churches can take advantage of. Uh, it's the easiest uh, church festival to get people to come to. Okay? And, and we'll cash in on it next week. And we'll, you know, we'll provide some things that, that people find familiar about Christmas, but hopefully 
um, we'll be able to powerfully tell people what it's really all about. So in the midst of the, the busyness of, of this season, I'd like to take a little time to look at Christmas from God's point of view. Christmas stripped of a lot of what we uh, come to know and love about Christmas uh, and uh, even the busyness of it. And uh, so um, and I hope that by looking at this that we may capture again a little bit the awe and the wonder of what God was doing and that will last a little bit longer than the Christmas season for us. Um, just remember, of course, that we'll pause and consider him who, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor, that through his poverty uh, we might become rich. If we can put the slide up, please, Paul. maybe just see that now if you don't didn't know the context necessarily I think you still know what that's about most if you show that to most people they would say it's a nativity scene wouldn't they you think you think so it speaks of a nativity scene doesn't it and um, rather than look at um, the detail of the Christmas story as recorded in Matthew and Luke uh, in the Gospels, I want to consider the heart of God that was behind uh, all of this. And um, I, I, I've called it the humbling of God. That might almost sound blasphemous, but when we see what God has done, it, it's exactly what it is. God humbled himself uh, for our sake. We might use the word condescension. Right? God condescended to come and be... A human being. Condescension is all about stooping, stooping low and self-abasement. On the one hand we have a God who is absolutely complete in himself, enjoying the love of the Trinity. Julian mentioned the Trinity in our worship this morning, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, um, enjoying that relationship together, uh, enjoying the love of the Trinity. Um, God is righteous, separated from sin and suffering, immune to the judgments of men. Many people have opinions about God and they shake their fist at God sometimes and think God should be doing this and God should be doing that. But God is totally immune from the judgments of men. He owes men nothing at all. And the all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present creator of all things, above all things, is under no obligation to his creation whatsoever. God is not obliged to do anything. Of course, the problem, is, as we know, is the problem of sin, that we are separated from God because of our sin. God wanted to restore that relationship that was broken through sin. But because of sin, mankind was under God's righteous wrath. God had to find a way to rescue us from sin without compromising his holiness. So God had to find a way uh, of satisfying his justice and his judgments as well as being able to love and forgive. There's no way that God could sweep our sins under the carpet, as it were, and ignore them because God is a God of justice and justice must be done. So according to his divine wisdom, God chose to come 
in person uh, in order to rescue us. God needed a perfect man uh, who was in every way like we are but without sin uh, who would keep God's law perfectly and stand in our place and be punished in our place. He needed a perfect man and his answer was a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit born of a woman and as members of the human race we all inherit Adam's sin. We all have a bias and that bias is to do wrong either to ignore God uh, or to offend our fellow human beings, we have a bias. It's illustrated by the fact that rarely do you have to teach a child to do wrong, but you do have to teach a child to do right. Naturally, a child will be selfish and self-seeking. So we all had that bias, but Jesus broke the bias uh, by the way in which he was conceived and the way in which he was born. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and it became fully man, yet without sin. God found an answer. He was able to provide a perfect man who could be a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The Apostle John at the very beginning of his Gospel tells us that the Word became flesh. And Derek reminded us on Monday evening at the carol service that the word, words are the way we express ourselves. It's a thought that is expressed. And God expresses himself through the word, which in this case refers to Jesus. And Derek also read from the front of a Christmas card, uh, which was a nice way of putting it, uh, that uh, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I rather like that. That's good. And what it means is that God came very near. God with us, Emmanuel. The angel said to Mary and Joseph on separate occasions that Mary would conceive by the Holy Spirit and the one born to her would be the Son of God. So we want to look into this mystery a little bit and it will always remain a mystery. Uh, we will look at these things and we cannot explain them. But should we be able to explain God? I don't think so. If we could explain everything about God, he would hardly be God, would he? But we're going to look into some familiar verses in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. Okay. And um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, yes, he's an apostle. Apostle is somebody who is sent, but sent by Jesus Christ on a mission. And apostles had different roles. Um, they might be church planters, uh, people who started churches. They preached the gospel in a place and a church was formed and they appointed elders in that church. They would lay good teaching foundations in the church. But another role of apostle uh, is to reveal God's truth. When we um, read the gospels, we get the facts about Jesus. Um, we get the facts about his life, his death, his resurrection and his returning to heaven. But very often what the apostles do is that they pull back a curtain for us and they show us the thinking behind, behind it, God's thinking and God's purpose uh, behind it all. So we're, we're going to look at that this morning and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. And this is the, the humbling and the exaltation, exaltation of Jesus going from the very highest to the very lowest. And... Um, Paul's reason for you using this passage, um, we can see from um, the beginning 
is that he wants to give the strongest argument to the Christians at this church in Philippi to humble themselves in the way that they behave towards one another. And he uses the humility of Jesus as an example of this. And in a few verses, he gives us some insights into lengths that God went to to become a human being and rescue us from the consequences of sin and our alienation from God. Um, whilst the cross, and the, the, the apostles talk about the cross a lot, and it's a, a, a shortened version, a, a way of saying the sacrifice of Jesus, when they, are, they refer to the cross. And the cross... Um, for the apostles was um, the main sacrifice of Jesus. The reason that Jesus came was to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And that was a, an amazing sacrifice. And it's absolute cent central to the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But there was another sacrifice that had to be made before the sacrifice on the cross could possibly happen. And that sacrifice was that God had to give up his rights. God had to make a sacrifice and give up his rights in order to become a human being. So let's read that. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ uh, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So from verse 6, we're going to just look at some of the statements here and see what they tell us about what was behind uh, and what was in God's mind in sending Jesus. So verse 6, and it will come up on the screen, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, uh, the NIV says, who was in very nature God. But being in the form of something can mean that it's not the real thing, can't it? I can say, here is a statue and it's in the form of a Greek God. Or here is a statue and it's a, in the form of a bird. It represents it, but it's not really the thing. Um, it could be an artistic representation. Um, I like watching a bit of drama on television, and I'm absolutely amazed how convincing actors and actresses are. I think they're absolutely fantastic. They enter into the character absolutely. 
don't they? There's, there's no, no hint that they're actually playing something. They enter into it fully. But they are only acting, however convincing they are. There is an imitation. And um, the, the Greek word um, that is translated here, form, means of the same substance. What the NIV says is quite helpful. Is of very nature God. He is in the same substance as, as God. He is the same as God. And, um, you know, he is the, the second person of the Trinity, as um, Julian mentioned earlier. And that he existed before he was conceived in Mary's womb, before he was born in Bethlehem. He is the pre-existent Christ. So it means that that which was born of Mary is of the same substance as God. In fact, he is God. And we know that uh, at the beginning of John's Gospel, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that talks about the Trinity, that, that the Word, Jesus, was with God there, but it also says that Jesus was God. I like the Living Bible version of that. It says, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God, and he's always been alive and is himself God. Paul says um, in Colossians, he says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And then a bit later it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in Hebrews it says, He is, this is Jesus, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know whether you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or not. Um, I, I admire them in many ways, their diligence in going from door to door, and often they're nice people to talk to. And in fact, I was out yesterday, and there was quite a lot of um, a, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses with their children, taking their children round from, from door to door. They are very diligent in what they do, but sadly they are mistaken, and primarily they're mistaken about the person of Jesus. And you will find that any religious sect that purports to be Christian, where it differs from genuine Christianity is that they make less of Jesus. He is less than the Bible reveals him to be. And I discovered a few years ago that... They say that Jesus and the Archangel Michael are one and the same. So Jesus is a son, not the son, and the Archangel Michael and Jesus are exactly the same. Now, at the beginning of Hebrews, um, very close to the passage I read, it, it says that he is greater than the angels and all the angels will worship him. How they come to that, I don't know. But we need to affirm um, this truth, that Jesus is, is very God, as the, the carol says, very God. He is God 
himself. If you look at that picture, there's something uh, absolutely amazing. Um, and we just say that what Christ was in eternity past, he did not cease to be when he was born in Bethlehem. This vulnerable baby is upholding the universe by the power of his word. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. But that's what the, what the scripture clearly teaches us. That this baby, this vulnerable baby, is yet still upholding the universe by the power of his word. Paul continues, the next slide please. It says, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. Again, this is something we can misread if we're not careful. It almost sounds that, that he's not God, um, and, and, but he restrained himself and didn't grasp onto um, what it means to be God. He, he didn't grasp onto equality with God, but that's not what it means. It means he did not cling to that which was rightly his, as God. He didn't take advantage of the fact uh, that he was God. He did not cling to his rights. And he did not shield himself from what it means to be human. I mean, God could have come in a form that, where he was protected on this side and that side, you know. And um, he was not a celebrity that was dropped down into a jungle and where he could cry out, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. All right? No, he, he, he gave up his rights to any of that kind of perfection, uh, protection. And we get a little insight into this when um, Jesus was erected in, uh, erected, ere arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples tried to defend him. And, and he says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels he could have protected himself but he relinquished his rights as God he gave them up then it goes on the next slide but emptied himself how do you empty yourself I'm not sure how you do that but we, when we look at the, the the human life of Jesus he, it was all about giving you know, Jesus lived for other people not for himself Everything. He gave, he gave his compassion, his love, uh, his emotions uh, to other people. Emptied himself. But the fact of the matter is he made himself nothing. No rights, no privileges, no special considerations, no status, no fallback position. He actually poured out uh, his life. He poured out his life. And in fact, we know that he possessed nothing apart from the clothes that he stood up in. Uh, he had no finance, no home, absolutely nothing. Uh, he went as low as he could. Uh, the next uh, slide. By taking the form of a servant. Here we had that word form again, um, and it's exactly the same word that was used when it said that it talked about being in the form of God. It's exactly the same Greek word. And of course, here, in the way of servant, it really means a slave, uh, the very lowest place in society. And um, again, he's not play-acting at being a servant. He's not play-acting. Um, I remember uh, some years ago, there was a documentary on television where a white man 
um, wanted to know what it was like uh, to be in a, a predominantly white community, but um, how it, what it was like to be somebody who was black uh, and what discrimination there was, uh, possible discrimination against him. So he was made up. Uh, he was made up to look uh, like a black man and it was very effective. And he went about his life, daily life, and he was amazed as to how he was discriminated against because of his colour. Now, of course, when that was all over, he could wash that off and it was gone. Um, but when Jesus came, uh, it was a conscious humbling of himself, a conscious humbling of himself. He came as a slave who has no rights, uh, and it's not about external features such as dress and activities, but it's about an inner reality. There was an inner reality about Jesus that he was a slave. And here's a question. How is that one who was God and never ceased to be God could embrace such a vocation? And the only answer is love. Uh, love for you and me. Being born in human likeness is the next statement. It says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Here's the mystery. The Son of God uh, takes on humanity but is still God. Any baby that's born to human parents, you wouldn't have to say this about them, would you? Uh, you wouldn't say, well, this baby is found in human form. But it was only necessary to say it uh, because of who Jesus was and is. And there was a conscious humbling of himself, a conscious humbling. Now, it, whilst it's true that um, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, uh, I am sending you, and in fact Jesus was being obedient to the Father in coming, nevertheless Jesus was party to the choice about coming uh, and to be born uh, uh, in human form as a baby. It was a conscious humbling of himself. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way, yet without sin, in every respect. Uh, so that he could understand our weaknesses, be tempted in every way such as we are, yet without sin, in order to be a perfect substitute and to take the punishment from our, for our sins. If he had sins of his own, then he would be punished for his own sins. But because he was sinless, and yet had experienced all the temptations and the pressures that we experience, and yet without sin, then he became a perfect substitute. The next phrase says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the ultimate humbling of himself. He's become a servant, he's become a slave, but now he's giving up his rights to life. Jesus accepted his mission and submitted himself to the torture and pain of the cross. Not just death, it says. It says even death on the cross. For some people, death can be a release, can't it? And in fact, there's a lot of pressure now to allow people um, to take their own life, assisted suicide, because they are suffering so much in life. And one has some sympathy uh, for people like that. Um, but for them, death, the actual point of dying would be the beginning of the release as far as they are concerned 
because um, their death would come about painlessly. Not so for Jesus. His death was the worst of deaths, the very worst of deaths. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists, insurrectionists and uh, you could say terrorists if you like. And Jesus accepted the shame and the curse and the alienation from the Father, the scandal and the, the absolute forsakenness, the forsakenness of it all. And in the face of death, obedience to the Father was almost too much to bear. We have to accept that, that it wasn't easy for Jesus to be obedient. Uh, and we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he's saying to the Father, if there's any other way we can do this, please, please take this cup of suffering from me. But he had made himself a slave and he was obedient and he was tested. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. God heard him, but his mission was to die. Although he was a son, he learned obedience uh, through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all uh, who obey him. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? And being made perfect. Surely he was the perfect son of God. How, how could he in any way become perfect? He, he lacked no perfection as God, but he had to be made perfect as a tempted, tried and tested human being in order uh, that he might be our substitute. Uh, he, he was tested and tried by Satan and the wrath of God and, and even through the wrath of God he was obedient. And even to the horrible death on the cross and the glorious triumph that was his afterwards. And therefore he became uh, our mighty champion. So Jesus had to be f perfected uh, as a human being who suffered in our place and suffered uh, the worst that man uh, could uh, um, uh, put on him, as it were. And then we come to the final, the final statement, which is not on the... I wish it is. It will come up on the screen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For Jesus to become a human being and take the form of a servant was a sacrifice, albeit a sacrifice of love. Um, and it's beyond our understanding. What Jesus endured is beyond our understanding. And Paul urges the church to have the same attitude in their dealings with one another. He's used as an example for them. And the longer I live and the longer I experience church, um, if we're going to do church properly and if we're going to honour Christ, sacrifice is necessary. We have to make sacrifices. In, and um, in, as we make sacrifices in church, then I believe that honours Christ and makes uh, a, a, the, the world uh, appreciate 
more and more of, of who Jesus is. That we can't do church without sacrifice. Jesus made the supreme sacrifice so that the word could become flesh among us. And if we want God's word to become flesh in us and for people to see the glory of Jesus in the church, then sacrifice is necessary. Uh, it would be nice to think that as we come together, uh, everything is unkidori and we all get on with one another very well. All our personalities link together and there's no problem whatsoever. But we know uh, that's not the case and that we have to work at it. And if, if, you, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you will find that time and time again, the apostles, just in this passage here, say that we're to accept one another, we're to love one another, we're to prefer one another, um, we're to forgive one another, we're to have patience with one another. If it was not necessary, they wouldn't say that. And it's just to be realistic about what church is like. And if we want Jesus to be honoured and glorified in the church, and if we want the very word of God uh, to, to be, become flesh in us and to be lived out in the church, then it, re it requires some uh, um, uh, sacrifice. Now we've looked at this passage in order to delve into the mystery of the incarnation and hopefully guard against losing some of the awe and wonder of it. But let's not miss um, Paul's application and, allow the word, and let us allow the word to become flesh in us uh, as Christ is seen in our life together. We're going to sing a song um, just to close and then the children are going to come and do something for us afterwards. You laid aside your majesty.